Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. All eyes are on the gridiron as teams are back for another football season. And as always, BetOnline is your number one spot for all the pro and college action this season. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use promo code BLEAVE, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your bonus today. From football, basketball, boxing, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers on the 2021 season. Bet online, where the game starts. All right, everybody. Welcome to another fantabulous episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 90. Under normal circumstances, I may say you know what that music means, but we have new music to bring us into Wired Up, so... That music from this point forward means, y'all know what that music means, it's time for Wired Up, and this is Wired Up episode 90 here on a Sunday here on the Take It Easy podcast. We've got a great show planned for you today. I've been uh, starting to work my way through 530 pages of Seth Wickersham's tell-all book about the New England Patriots, and I want to know more about how all of this happened. Even stuff that was before I was even a football fan. How did all of that happen? And so we're going to talk about Tom Brady coming up here. The psychosis of Tom Brady. How Tom Brady got to being where he was and what ended up happening once he got to the mountaintop. And why he is still somehow at the mountaintop. So we'll get to that and we'll talk a little bit about the uh, Houston Astros coming up later on on the pod. But first... We got to talk about the Purdue game because it is a joke of all jokes that is probably well reserved for memes of the weekend, but memes of the weekend can wait because we are going to talk about this craziness between the Purdue Boilermakers and the Iowa Hawkeyes because college football is just having one of those seasons where everything is just crazy in the sport and nobody understands anything and congratulations to the Iowa Hawkeyes for one week of being legit in everyone's minds. Purdue was ranked not at all. Iowa was ranked number two in the country. The game was at Iowa. They had just beaten Penn State. And the Big Ten, which was looking so good, they had five teams in the top ten, but I said last week that, yes, they had five teams in the top ten, but they were all going to start beating each other up at some point. I did not think the Big Ten West, after having the success of Iowa, after having Nebraska put up a fight against Michigan but still losing, after having Wisconsin fall apart this season and having a totally un-Big Ten West-like season, I did not think the Big Ten West chaos would start literally a week after Iowa got to the best ranking they've had in 40 years Well, really 35. 1985 was the last time Iowa was ranked in the top two. 
And it's not like they've been a terrible program either. Like Iowa made a Rose Bowl like six years ago before Christian McCaffrey curb stomped them. They made multiple Orange Bowls in the 2000s. Like Iowa has still been a pretty good program. And this was their best season in 35 years. And they got literally a week. They got one week to enjoy it. And it was over. It was over at the hands of unranked Purdue. Came into the game three and two. And it's over if you're an Iowa Hawkeye fan. It it was fun while it lasted, and now you can uh, enjoy your season. Maybe making the Big Ten championship, maybe not making the Big Ten championship. At least before, you could talk yourself into we can make the playoffs if we just beat Ohio State. Now, that's gone. That's gone. I don't care how many bad teams there are in college football this year or how many teams beat each other up or whether Oklahoma is allowed to win games by more than 14 points. It's over for Iowa, and it was so fast, too. So many teams have been shuffled in and out this year. Like, Oregon losing to Stanford was shocking, but the game went to double overtime, at least. Like, you could kind of talk that one away as, like, the wacky, oh, the Pac-12 does what the Pac-12 does. This was Iowa not only losing by 17, but Purdue's wide receiver also threw the ball at the pylon to try and score a touchdown that ended up being called a fumble out the back of the end zone. So Purdue won by 17 and left points on the field. It was just genuinely unbelievable. And by the way, Iowa had like 15 yards of offense through most of the second half. I don't know what they did in garbage time, but they had 15 yards of offense. Just absolutely brutal but also just absolutely college football. Because I said it off the top, college football's just having one of these years. Hasn't happened in a while, but college football's just having one of these weird years where everyone is having wacky upsets. The second you get to be number two in the country, you lose again, and win streaks collapse, and coaches are being fired, and LSU's getting curb stomped by Kentucky last week, and they come back and they beat Florida. And now Ed Orgeron gets to keep his job and uh, SEC football and Big Ten football and Big 12 football are joining the Pac-12 and the ACC and making this a chaos year. And we have a segment on Memes of the Weekend. It ends every podcast. It's how did the Pac-12 and ACC bleep things up this week? This was the Big Ten West wanting to get back in the conversation because one of the jokes used to be the Big Ten West has been the same conference for 20 years. You got Wisconsin, you got Iowa, you got a bunch of teams that just like to beat each other up, and none of them are actually any good. Minnesota's going to go 6-6. Six and six. Um, it's, it's been 10 years since they formed the Big Ten. It's just been the same conference, and this year was a break from that. Really, the last two years, if you throw out 2020, because 2020 they only played like six regular season games. If you go back to 2019 with Minnesota and that magical run and row the boat and all that stuff. And then you come to this year, the Big Ten West was shaking their identity. We make fun of the ACC Coastal and the Pac-12 all the time. And now we're just getting the whole ACC in there because the whole ACC wants to play this game this year. But the jokes used to be about the Big Ten West. And for people who think you're just making the same jokes over and over again, look, I am capable of evolving if you prove me otherwise. The Big Ten West is an example of this. They have proved me wrong across the last three years and we don't make Big Ten West jokes anymore. And now the Big Ten West jokes can come right back because Iowa got to be number two in the country thanks to Texas A&M's wacky win against Alabama. 
and the fact that Oregon lost and Ohio State lost when they were at the top and Oklahoma technically hasn't lost yet but it's still just been ridiculous how many close games they've played so far it's just been that year for college football and we all get to enjoy it and laugh at it when the Purdue game always comes in why is it called the Purdue game because since 1990 Purdue has the most victories in college football against top two ranked opponents and that Ladies and gentlemen, is why the Purdue game was a punchline back a week ago when I said, well, Iowa's going, Iowa's doing great, but they have to face the Purdue game at some point. Uh, you want to check out the slump buster. I pretty much nailed everything that's happened for Iowa. I said, in joking, but somehow came true, just being sarcastic. I'm like, yeah, Iowa's going to beat Penn State, even though I can't name a single player on that team, and then they're probably going to lose to Purdue. And it came true so fast and I love it so freaking much. So I have been getting quite invested in Seth Wickersham's book about the New England Patriots and it's basically just 533 pages of psychological analysis analyses and stories and Figuring out the Patriots dynasty now that it's over. Sorry, Patriots fans. It is over. Not only is it over, you guys get the worst case scenario now of having to be the people holding on to the greatness that once was. Like the Spurs tried to do, or the Lakers tried to do, the Chicago Bulls tried to do. You guys get the the pain of now the bottoming out is going to be a whole lot worse because you can't really turn this thing around. It's a lot of glorification of the past. But even still, the New England Patriots book is out, and I'm going through it. We heard all the big stories a couple weeks ago before the Brady-Belichick game, and we talked about them a bunch, uh, especially with our buddy Cam over at DSD, because, of course, he's a Boston, a Bostonian who uh, loves his Boston sports radio and talking Tom Brady, so... We talked a lot about it before, but going into the, the book itself, it's really interesting because the, it doesn't come short for details. And this is like two decades of football that we're trying to get into. And it goes back further than that because you have to understand where Belichick comes from, where Brady comes from, where Robert Kraft comes from. And so I'm about a fifth of the way through the book so far, really a fourth of the way through the book, I'd say. I've, I've, on audiobook, it's like 17 hours long. I'm about four and a half hours into it. So we're working our way through it. And one of the things that they've gotten to already is because this is technically part one of three, but it's it's 2001 to 2006 is the first part, 2006 to 2014, and then 2014 to the present. And what they did with the 2001 to 2006 part is really go back to 1977 through 2006, because it tells the story of Tom Brady and the connections that Seth Wickersham made, because I did not realize that Seth Wickersham is the same age as Tom Brady and got to the Boston market the same year Tom Brady did. And so that was the connection they had fortified early on his career, and he had built with Brady's parents a couple times. He had dinner with them, et cetera, et cetera. And Wickersham talks about how Tom Brady gets to be Tom Brady. And it's 
Something that I found interesting because my whole life, the thing I'd always looked at is statistically when Tom Brady first gets into the NFL, he is a backup level quarterback who ends up getting the beneficiary of the New England Patriots. Get it. The, the New England Patriots having a really strong defense and the roster that they had built and the benefactor of the tuck rule, which they go really in depth on the idea of the tuck rule, that literally that Patriots team, which the year before went 5-11, and came back the next year and started off, I believe, six or 5-5. Five and five. So to start his Patriots tenure, Bill Belichick was 10-16, and 16, and then they run off six in a row to end the season, just like the Tampa Bay team in 2020, and they end up getting to that divisional playoff game, and they should have lost at that point, which is about where that team should have lost, because that is one of the weakest champions to win a Super Bowl. They pulled off the biggest upset since Joe Namath calling his shot 33 years earlier in Super Bowl 36, and so they talk about that year in a way that was the way that I had perceived perceived Tom Brady, which was that Brady was a, you know, a third round prospect who fell to the sixth round. He was a backup to Drew Bledsoe, capable quarterback, but built on the defense and the Belichick scheme. The Patriots won those first couple Super Bowls. And the way that Tom Brady got to being Tom Brady was something that I found super fascinating because it's not the stereotypical story of any other quarterback or star athlete etc etc and it gives like Michael Jordan Tom uh, Kirk Herbstreet vibes a little bit where it's like this is not supposed to happen and Tom Brady even like his dad points uh, Tom Brady senior I should say Tom Brady the the father of uh Thomas Brady is the father Tom Brady is the son because he's Tom Brady Jr. but his dad even talks about like if Tom Brady decides coming out of high school that he's going to go play at Cal instead of at Michigan, which are the two schools that are primarily recruiting him as well as USC who ends up dropping out towards the end. If he doesn't go to Michigan, he probably has a great career at Cal plays almost immediately and then goes into the finance world because Tom Brady one of the things that I learned very quickly is just that Tom Brady was just a frat dude. He was a frat dude growing up in the 90s, and when he gets caught with the Trump hat at his locker and we question his political opinions, like it makes sense that the way all of that played out with Tom Brady. Tom Brady's just a frat dude who came from a household where once he signed his $193,000 signing bonus with the Patriots when he first got there as a sixth-round pick, he was still making less than his dad living in San Mateo slash San Francisco. Like, Tom Brady comes from upper-middle class, like, white high schools overwhelmingly, and the star quarterback gets treated really well by the system. Like, this system of being upper-middle class, white, wealthy, it pays dividends for Tom Brady, and so he embraces that mold, and he's just kind of a frat dude growing up. He's the backwards baseball cap guy who drinks a lot of beer and, and you know, pizza and all that stuff. And so it makes sense that Tom Brady got to be the place he was after the fact. So with that being said, Tom Brady growing up has not that much that would, like, decipher him from anyone else except for a story of, like, mental fortitude of sorts it's like 
his dad was his best friend, or I'm sorry, he was his dad's best friend. I don't know if his dad was his best friend, but Tom Jr. was Tom Sr.'s best friend growing up, and he would make them play golf at times, and every it would and the way that Tom's dad recruited and helped support Tom was probably the reason why he got to Michigan in the first place, and the reason he gets to Michigan is the reason why he makes it to the NFL, but even still... His dad ends up filming him during high school games and hires a professional videographer, which isn't that professional in the long run, to create a highlight tape. Every day after work, he ends up being available and, you know, helps him field grounders or hit in the batting cage, et cetera, et cetera. And just the availability is what Tom Jr., Tom Brady, says that his dad kind of helped him with, which is being available and not being the person to crush his dream. Like, it, they didn't think he would be a Division One quarterback, but they weren't going to be the people to tell him that he wasn't going to be anything because it wasn't their place to crush his dream, which seems simple enough, but I think it's something that a lot of people in general lack. And that's just cynicism in a way, but parents even too to a certain extent but just people in general being the one to try and crush someone else's dream is not necessarily your place and i think the humility of sorts that tom's parents realized in that situation or the perspective around it because tom brady had three older sisters who all went on to be either d1 athletes or debate people or sorry like all state debate team and tom's sisters kind of like set that stage forward but then Tom gets the full attention because of the age gap between himself and his sisters and so he, they I mean his parents talked about like they don't know how it ended up that he became Tom Brady of all places but he doesn't play football until he's a sophomore in high school and he's got the crazy work ethic which of course you know anyone who gets to that place has the crazy work ethic of waking up at 5 a.m doing agility drills running hills because every single scouting report he gets from high school to college to the nfl always says he needs to do things faster he's too slow and that was the old guard way of evaluating quarterbacks that Tom Brady was about to destroy because of all of the intangibles. And I put intangibles in air quotes, but it's also the extreme accuracy that Tom Brady had and the fact that he could make the short game happen or that everything he felt, uh, sorry, uh, photographic memory. That's what I was thinking of. Photographic memory, all those things that I don't think football talent evaluation had caught up to at that point, but at least are things that people look for in comparison to the past. But even with only playing football from his sophomore year of high school onward, Tom Brady gets the D1 scholarship, which means there's something there within the work ethic, considering that he says it himself. He doesn't really have a all-time type of build. Like, he lost 20 pounds because of appendicitis between his sophomore and junior year, and he just started eating 18-inch subs to try and put on the weight like Tom Brady wasn't super remarkable he just was working a bunch to get to that point which is super weird because that's you know the cliche sports porn that we talk about which is like this guy what came from nothing just an average Joe who worked and worked and worked and became great but even Tom's dad says like yeah if he chooses to go to Cal here he just he has a good college career goes undrafted maybe goes into finance like, Tom Brady just becomes another frat dude who graduates college, and that's the peak of his life. 
and he never gets that chance to become Tom Brady or prove himself once he gets there, which is interesting once he does get to the Patriots, but we'll get to that maybe eventually. So Tom Brady's dad and him sit down with a book of every D1 and D2 schools, and they made a list of places that they would want to send a highlight tape to. And that idea caught me because they were proactive in trying to help Tom get the D1 scholarship. And by them, I mean himself and his parents, and to an extent his coaches, but there was only so much they could do from that point forward. And I think that's something that I thought about that stuck with me. One, because of the point in my life that I'm at where I want to try and work within sports and, you know, I'm getting close to that point where I'm going to have to graduate and look up and say, all right, how are we going to, how are we going to tell people about the work other than just, you know, the social media people? How am I going to tell people about the work that I'm doing? And so Tom ends up being the proactive one, Tom Jr. and Tom Sr. in this case, end up being proactive there. And I don't think everyone would have been in that case. Without the support system there, even the people who believe in themselves, there are dozens of Tom Brady's who never got a chance. And this happens all the time in basketball where people talk about like how they they came from X, Y, or Z place and there were like five people better than them growing up. And it's just for every Tom Brady, there's dozens and dozens of dozens who never got that shot there. And the proactive work of telling people about that work is something that kind of reflects with me because it reflects one of my core values that I struggle with, um, along with being courageous. Uh, I think those two kind of go hand in hand of being proactive and being courageous because uh, if you take proactive measures, sometimes it makes the hard thing easier and the hard thing usually invokes leadership because it's if it were easy, everyone would do it. If leadership were easy, everyone would do it. It's just sometimes we have to make the hard decisions. And they talked about how Tom Brady's always even keeled, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, one of the things I found super interesting was they talked about where does Tom Brady get his confidence to execute a late game drive better than almost anyone else. And the thing he talks about is the two-minute drill. The way you get that confidence is only from past success. By seeing yourself do it in the past, it becomes exponentially easier to execute in the two-minute drill where the coach's play calls kind of evaporate and you dictate the game and everything is set right in front of you. That's where Tom Brady excelled the most. And he ends up becoming like king of the comeback when he's in college, which takes him a while to get there. So going back a little bit before we talk about like mental Tom Brady stuff. So Tom Brady ends up going to Michigan and he chooses Michigan despite the fact that Cal, which is obviously a lesser program, offers him immediate playing time. Brady ends up going to Michigan where after a coaching change with the people who recruit him and Lloyd Carr taking over, Tom Brady ends up being the seventh quarterback down on the depth chart. And then by his sophomore year, a.k.a. his redshirt freshman year, Tom Brady ends up being the third stringer, then the second stringer during the national championship run in 1997, and then he ends up becoming the starter in 1998, despite the fact that Lloyd Carr recruits like all Michigan player at quarterback to be behind Tom Brady, super athlete, etc., etc. Talks glowingly about the most talented prospect he's ever had, even though Tom Brady is the quarterback. And Brady ends up 
getting the starting job in 1998. 1999, they end up winning 10 games. Uh, Tom Brady ends up leading, I think, five of their 10 victories were comebacks. They played in the Orange Bowl, and he led a comeback in the Orange Bowl against Florida. And that just kind of becomes the thing. Is like he's the uh, I think Keith Jackson was the one who calls him the best man of the year in college football. Not the Heisman, but just the man of the year being Tom Brady. Senior, team captain, all the cliches. Tom Brady, I mean, he still talks today about how being Michigan team captain was the greatest award that he had ever received in his life. Now, whether you believe him or not, that's another thing. But it uh, it's understandable given that the sacrifice that Tom Brady had to do just to get to being team captain at Michigan. Because when he's a backup in his third year, he's all but decided that he's going to transfer. And one of the coordinators our quarterbacks coaches or one of those ends up leaving to go to Indiana and Tom Brady's option is to transfer to Indiana potentially and be the starting quarterback and everyone is prepared for Tom Brady to leave and he talks to his basically his therapist but this was before there were licensed therapists at a certain point so this is just someone who was hired by Bo Schembagler who keeps hanging around the program it's not the type of therapy one would expect but it's like a counselor of sorts for Tom Brady with and other players within the football program he talks about how he went to see him and said I think I'm going to transfer and the counselor basically told him they don't care you haven't done anything at Michigan and he talks with his dad and one of the things he says is like, I don't know if I'm ever going to play here. And his dad says, yep, that is an entirely true possibility. And that's what his counselor says is like, there's a chance you may never play. There's a chance you may play. But if you have the negative attitude or as he describes it as when he first meets Tom Brady after his redshirt freshman year before he's going to be the backup for the 97 national championship team. If Tom wasn't depressed, he was pretty close. That's a direct quote, by the way. If Tom wasn't depressed, he was pretty close. And he's thinking of transferring and whether the sacrifice is going to be worth it and three years of being three reps a week and then slowly but steadily those reps increase after the fact. But at this crossroad in Tom Brady's life, this is just another moment where one decision the other way, Tom Brady never gets the chance in the NFL. Because he could go on to be a great quarterback at Indiana. But even being a great quarterback at Indiana doesn't give you the exposure when if Tom Brady is two quarterbacks worse than what he was in the the 2000 draft, he doesn't get drafted. By the way, a draft class presumed to be a weak quarterback class. Then Tom Brady doesn't ever end up being the backup for any team. And he never gets the chance. And maybe he goes to finance or maybe he goes to radio. And the story reminded me exactly of what I uh, got with Kirk Herbstreet. Because I listened to Kirk Herbstreet's audio book. And what he talks about is basically he was five-star recruit, chooses Ohio State over Michigan. And he ends up three years as a backup, switching to safety for two weeks, thinking of transferring and quitting altogether and then riding it out just to get one full season as Ohio State starter, similar to Tom Brady, except Brady got two full seasons. Brady graduates. He gets drafted sixth round in the NFL draft. Herb Street graduates, gets an invite to Bengals camp, and that's the end of his football career. 
So Herb Street, obviously it worked out for him becoming a commentator, but he's a classic Tom Brady example. Like the the cliche story of a college player from the 80s and 90s and 70s where you know, you fight your way from the bottom of the depth chart and get your way up. And is that a little bit of sports porn? Absolutely. And suffer porn and all that stuff of like the difference between Tom Brady and everyone else was that he worked hard. He got to be a captain and all that stuff. When there's some truth to the story, no doubt. But of course, as we're explaining, like there are moments here where Tom Brady doesn't become Tom Brady. Tom Brady's battling depression. Tom Brady is is pondering transferring. Tom Brady goes to Cal. He never gets the chance to become Tom Brady. Because without Michigan and without that spotlight and without all of those comebacks, because what does Tom Brady do better than anything else from the first time that he started playing? Executing a two-minute drill. That is the thing that from the very beginning, Tom Brady won the lottery on because his gift in the world was executing a two-minute drill, playing quarterback of a football team. And he up until 2003 with the Patriots, he only lost twice in the two-minute drill. And he'd executed a dozen in his career. From two years at Michigan to three years of high school football to two and a half years in the NFL. So what is that? Seven and a half years of playing quarterback. Only twice did he not execute a final two-minute drive for at least a tie. And by the way, one of those cases ends up being Super Bowl 36 and Super Bowl 38 the year later with Adam Vinatieri making both of those field goals. And so Brady has the success at Michigan, almost gets drafted by the Chargers, by the way. That's a fun fact. Mike Riley put down Chargers, take Tom Brady in the sixth round, and uh, Bobby Beathard ended up going against him because Bobby Beathard didn't like Tom Brady as a prospect. And so the Chargers passed on Tom Brady. He ends up going to the Patriots. Again, starts out fourth guy on the depth chart. Works his way up. They have to make a rule about Tom Brady uh, working out too late in the team offices because or the team weight room and the team uh, video room. Tom Brady would take tape to the visitor's locker room so nobody would see him because he was out there so long. And that's the work ethic part that I think separates any of the great people. Is like, yes, if you work extra hard compared to another person, you will get an extra advantage. But work ethic isn't everything, of course, in these circumstances. Tom Brady's an example of how work ethic got him better at football. But something that I'm also pondering is, did Tom Brady just get better because he started football so late? And didn't have an, a totally unremarkable body. I mean, he po- he poses to himself that he wasn't a major college recruit. But within three years, Tom Brady had like five major schools pursuing him. Like, this dude was a four-star recruit. No question coming out of high school. And so, you could see the path on the way. And Tom Brady talked about how one of his high school coaches was the people who first put into his mind, like, 10 years from now, all these people are not going to be playing football you can still be going. You are one of a kind. And that was the first time he could actually start dreaming that big was his junior year of high school. And so Brady ends up getting through all of that to the NFL. And the whole way through, one of the things that Wickersham keeps talking about is Brady saying, I'm going to beat Drew Bledsoe. I'm going to beat Drew Bledsoe. I'm going to beat Drew Bledsoe. 
I'm going to outplay Drew Bledsoe. Even when Bledsoe is the face of the New England Patriots because he's the number one pick in the draft, led them to a Super Bowl, Bill Parcells leaves the team and he's the only recognizable face left. The whole way through, I'm going to beat Drew Bledsoe. I'm going to beat Drew Bledsoe. I'm going to beat Drew Bledsoe. And he ends up becoming the second string quarterback for the Patriots. And then Drew Bledsoe gets hurt immediately after signing a 10-year contract with the Patriots, which is kind of unbelievable when you think about it. And Tom Brady is better than Drew Bledsoe. Tom Brady is immediately better than Drew Bledsoe, so much so that when Bledsoe gets to be healthy and the Patriots are on this win streak that helps them get to 11-5, and Drew Bledsoe ends up not getting his starting job back. And I think only with Belichick would that have happened. Wickersham talks about how Belichick was setting up a culture of meritocracy where nothing was going to be earned. There was no entitlement. Everyone was going to be another person. And obviously this is the thing that ends up driving out Tom Brady towards the end. Well-deserved for Tom Brady, of course, but it ends up being the part where Belichick doesn't evolve to make exceptions for Tom Brady. And so the Patriots end up cutting Tom Brady's roommate during his first couple of years and that makes him upset because this is just a, a you know a cutthroat contract dispute etc cetera, etc cetera. and then Brady ends up playing through that year and they end up making the Super Bowl and they celebrate the Super Bowl and they pull off the magical upset against the Rams that like I said ends up being this gigantic upset and this one is kind of just the interesting story is that Tom Brady loved his rhythm so much. And I can understand this so much from a podcast standpoint. Tom Brady loved his rhythm so much that he woke up at 5 a.m. after the Super Bowl to work out before the championship parade. Not because it's like we can't, no days off type of thing. It was just that Brady found solace in the routine, in the consistency. And this is something that I say a lot with hard work. And I forget where the quote came from. I think it was from Deshaun Watson's book, which has not aged well, but it's a great book for just leadership um, lessons of sorts. And one of the things they talk about is, or he talks about is that hard work feels like work to everyone else. But in the moment, it feels normal, especially when you love what you're doing. When you're willing to work hard towards something that you're really passionate about, it only looks like hard work to the outside. And so people looked at Tom Brady and thought that dude is working hard. Even people who thought they were working hard looked at Tom Brady and saw that dude is working hard to be great. And Tom Brady probably looked at other people and said, wow, that person is working really hard. And other people have the motivation to go for it, but Tom Brady ends up being a little bit of a football square to a certain extent. Like Tom Brady ends up being someone who eats, sleeps, breathes football from like 4.30 a.m. to 12 at midnight. And Belichick is kind of the same way. That's how Belichick gets to be one of these all-time coaches. Not the greatest, like not the greatest strategic coach of all time, although the argument is absolutely there if you want to parse hairs. But one of the examples they talk about in the book, more towards the Belichick side, and they do a great job recapping that. Uh, Belichick Jets saga 
that we talked about on a podcast back at the very start of the pandemic, like 18 months ago, that's somewhere over there. So if you want to go deep into the archives, you can check out our podcast on the Jets Belichick story. But there's a really good part in that book where they talk about it. And they compare it with Mike Shanahan, who ends up being one of the great, you know, strategic coaches on the offensive side of the ball of all time, ends up creating a generation of zone running schemes to build around an older John Elway that ends up being replicable with pretty much any quarterback. And they go through this story with Shanahan and talk about how, what was the difference between Bill Belichick and Mike Shanahan? And they tell this story through the foil of the 2003 game where Belichick takes an intentional safety down one point just so they can get a stop and so the Broncos could end up punting back to the Patriots and they get better field positioning and the Patriots go on to win. And then they pull up the classic Belichick quote of, in order to win, we have to not lose. So the other team loses the game more than you win it or you lose the game and let instead of the other team beating you. That's one of the the Belichick-isms that they talk about in the book. And I'm fascinated by this part of it because Bill Belichick and Mike Shanahan did have extremely similar systems. Extremely smart, innovative people. Not great in terms of relationship building. They did not have personal relationships with their players. Extremely cutthroat when it came to roster decisions. And how did, with all of that, Bill Belichick... And Mike Shanahan, who both accomplished everything there is to accomplish in the sport. How is it that Bill Belichick is light years ahead of Mike Shanahan in legacy? It looks like a a bump here, a tuck rule there. Both of them had reached heights that very few in the sport had reached. Multiple Super Bowl champions. Winning season after winning season after winning season after failures originally. You know, Belichick started his career with one winning season in six years. Mike Shanahan got fired by the Oakland Raiders, or I guess Los Angeles Raiders at that time. Like, both of them had very similar paths, very similar coaching styles. It's not like Belichick and company were doing something no one else was doing. They were just doing it better than everyone else because they were more committed to the meritocracy, the cutthroat play, and, quite simply... They got 20 years of Tom Brady and a few Hall of Famers here and there that they made sure to protect. But altogether, they kind of knew exactly how we can break the salary cap system by easily replacing players within a scheme because we know exactly what type of players we're looking for. We can get them for cheap. And when they become expensive, we can move on from them because we have an extremely cutthroat evaluation process that takes all of the emotion out of it. And we're just going to be more better than everyone else. Doesn't have to be perfect, just has to be more better than everyone else. And so the difference there is not as pronounced. Like Bill Belichick built this amazing system. Regardless of what you think about the Brady-Belichick dynamic, now that Brady's gone on to win championships with Tampa and the Patriots have kind of fallen apart, or Belichick's failure to evolve with the times and his terrible drafting across the last six years, regardless of what you think about Brady versus Belichick, Both of them are all-time greats at their position. You could argue that if you strip away the championships and look just at the process, Brady is not the greatest quarterback of all time, and Bill Belichick is not the greatest coach of all time. 
but they have the results in hand that separate everything from everyone else. And it's a sport, or it's really just sports as a whole where randomness can happen. A tuck rule can steal a championship from the Raiders and gift it to the Patriots. And if that happens, does Tom Brady keep his job after that season? Do they go back to Drew Bledsoe? Do they have a quarterback controversy? The following year, the Patriots went 9-7 and with Tom Brady and missed the playoffs. Do they continue to sign free agents? Because that's something they did in 2000 that really built things up with like the Vrabels of the world ended up being signed as mid-level free agents. They signed, I think they said, like 17 players for like $2.5 million in guarantees. Do they end up continuing that strategy instead of pivoting to the meritocracy patriot way that we think of now? And then you could go forward. What happens if the ball doesn't kicked out of bounds in the Panthers game? What if Vinatieri misses a kick here and there? What if Malcolm Butler doesn't intercept the pass? What if you run the ball? What if Kyle Shanahan picks up the first down in the Super Bowl? What if the D Ford doesn't jump off sides? Like you can go all the way down the line of like weird results that end up creating success for the Patriots, and yet all of it comes together, culminating in that first magical season that ends up setting the way for everything else that comes afterwards. And if you're trying to find the story of Brady and Belichick, you need to, need to, need to, need to check out this book because I tried to do it across 30 minutes, but I'm sure there are lots of great details that I was missing out on because it's really fascinating, this book and this story and all of the stuff that led into that first championship team, which is about the part where I am at this point through this story. So cannot recommend the book enough the patriot way with seth or uh, it's better to be feared with seth wickersham it's the book on the patriot way and the patriot way is three words and three people tom brady bob Kraft, and bill belichick Baseball is such a weird sport. October baseball is such a weird experience. So we've been gone for, you know, 48 hours or so. And we've had three baseball games go down, all of which just make zero sense at all. Nothing about any of those games make any sense. So let's just start off with Friday. Because Friday was so cool And we all got a crash course, at least those of us who watched, got a crash course in what I like to call Astro Ball 101, which a better word might be Astroology 101, because the Houston Astros were losing to the Boston Red Sox. And the reason they were losing was a Jose Altuve error, which never happens, ever 
Jose Altuve never has moments like that. And what happens? They get an Altuve two-run homer literally after the broadcast does an analysis about how six Jose Altuve home runs in the ALCS. He's played in four ALCSs. This is now his fifth. He's played in four of them. He's hit six homers. Four of the six home runs have been hit in what's called a hot zone for Altuve, which is the top four brackets on the nine, or the, the, the top four, the top right quadrants on the pitch track, the, the, the little box that they show that like has the nine different quadrants for the strike zone. Up and into Altuve is his hot zone, and it's where he capitalizes on most of his homers. Literally, first pitch after they do this really in-depth analysis about Altuve, he hits a home run with a pitch in his hot zone. And the Astros tie the game, hits it all the way up to the Crawford boxes, and the train goes around, and the Astros look like they're having fun, and that stadium is rocking. And then Carlos Correa. The heel of baseball, because baseball gets more exciting when we have villains. Anything gets more exciting when we have villains. And one of the things that I've talked about around baseball is that because the sport only has a soft salary cap and no salary floor, there can be massive discrepancies in spending, which relatively correlate to massive discrepancies in success. Major differences in spending lead to major differences on the field as a basic principle, doesn't always work that way. The Astros spend a lot and are really smart. The Tampa Bay Rays don't spend a lot and are really smart, and they happen to kind of get trade-offs and successes. By the way, fun fact, of the remaining playoff teams, Dodgers, ran by former Rays president, Boston, Heim Bloom, second in command in Tampa before going to Boston, Houston, James Crick, vice president of the Rays before filling in for disgraced GM Jeff Lunau, and the Atlanta Braves, GM, former Tampa Bay employee. Milwaukee Brewers, their team assist, their general manager, not their president of baseball ops, but their, their second in command in Milwaukee, also a Tampa Bay Rays guy. It's amazing how much that team has influenced baseball and how if you work in that organization, you can find work pretty much anywhere at the top of a baseball organization if you promote and stick with it long enough. So back to Carlos Correa. I was saying before that how as much as baseball, the playoffs make no sense, and this weekend was a perfect example of that, it's always Braves, Dodgers, Astros, Yankees, Red Sox, as the final teams at the top. Occasionally, you'll get a weird team like the Nationals that makes something happen in 2019, or the Rays last year being better than both the Yankees and the Astros, but they had to go through the Yankees and Astros to get to the World Series. And so, the same teams end up at the top, and you feel like you've seen these moments before. And the Astros delivered memories, even though it's the fifth time they've been here. They've had so many opportunities for this. They delivered another damn memory because the heel of baseball, Carlos Correa, hits a home run to win the game. And what does he do in the seventh inning? He hits a homer, watches it go, drops the bat, 
and just points to his wrist like he's Damian Lillard, you know what time it is. And it was just the swaggiest thing I've seen. It was a no-doubter home run. It was so freaking cool that Carlos Correa did that. And you guys know I'm not the... I am the person who said the Astros shouldn't have been punished at all because you shouldn't have punished Lunau or shouldn't have have punished Hinch. And yet still, that leads me to kind of be like the pro-Astros guy. I would take it a step further and even get to the point where I go all the way to being pro Houston Astros because then I have to defend it over and over again about how I think that this should be an evolution of the sport and how we should have the same thing football has where you have little buzzers between pitchers and catchers and pitchers getting a headset directly from the manager or you have a designated coach who calls the pitches and the catcher and pitcher both hear it and then can deliver signs outside of that I think that's the next evolution of the sport and the Astros scandal should have been the evolution is that you change the rules and if you want to do scapegoating punishment that's fine but doing scapegoating punishment but not changing the rules kind of defeats the whole purpose so anyways I end up defending the Astros a lot but even if you hate the Astros that Carlos Correa moment was swaggy it was fun it was offending 60 year old white men and things that offend 60 year old white men for being too cool or being too hip or all the code words you want to use for being too Latin or being too black or being too LGBTQ. I mean, I could say the way that, you know, 60-year-old white men would say it, but I don't want to. Even that, anything that pisses on the tradition and makes 60-year-old white men mad, I am all in favor of it, even if the messenger is Carlos Correa. So Correa drills that one, Houston goes up 1-0, and then Boston comes back the next night or afternoon because the game was at like four o'clock at east coast time and i turned that game on a little bit i had the kentucky and uh i had the kentucky georgia game on so i turned it on in the first inning when i came in it was bases loaded two outs and jd martinez hit a grand slam and then i went back to watching kentucky georgia checked the astros didn't really do anything bottom of the first came back second inning bases loaded one out And Rafael Devers hit another grand slam for the Boston Red Sox. And in that moment, I just turned it off. I'm like, okay, Boston wins game two. I can save myself a few hours. Same thing happened uh, a couple of years ago when the Cardinals were playing a winner go home against the Braves and scored 10 runs in the first. I was like, all right, we can go do something else now. I watched that, watched the two grand slams. And I'm like, all right, we are good here. Let's go to the grocery store. And that was kind of my experience with the second game. Now, the third game we have Dodgers Braves and it caught me by surprise a bit that the Braves were actually the home team for the first game even though the Dodgers won like 17 more games than the Braves and that was just because the Dodgers were the wild card team and seeding matters in baseball and this is by design by the way it's not like this is something that should change or this is wrong like this is by design baseball still wants to incentivize winning the divisions Because division races drive interest into the sport, presumably. That's their rationale for it. But even still, it caught me by surprise that the Braves were hosting the Dodgers despite winning 17 fewer games. And the Braves took full advantage of that because Max Freed was their number one pitcher. and He pitched a pretty good gem. The same way we talked about when previewing this series over on the Slump Buster. That there is a path to victory for Atlanta. 
and it comes through the pitching staff with Freed, presumably Morton in game two, and Ian Anderson in game three, and then rotating those three pitchers over and over. The path is that you can get outs with the Dodgers lineup. The Dodgers lineup is super top heavy. Mookie Betts can be wildly inconsistent, as we saw with his no-hit performance against the Braves, coming off of a four-hit performance in Game 5 against the Giants. Like, you can get to the Dodgers. You can get, you can manufacture outs. And the Braves don't have a very good lineup, but it did better in this game against the Dodgers. Like, it wasn't perfect, but it did better at least. And so, they get to the end of the game and get the Austin Riley walk-off. They played small ball as a way to manufacture. Ozzie Albies has a, a nice little get get on first base type of hit and then steals second and Austin Riley drives in the game winner with a ball down the line. Bit of a mistake by Blake Trinan. Like I think Riley probably coulda, shoulda, woulda hit it out of the ballpark, but all he needed was a little slap down the left field line to score Albies and that is exactly what he did with a walk-off double. And the Braves are up 1-0. I didn't think the Braves would go up 1-0, but I did say that I thought the Dodgers would win in six. Technically, to get to six, you have to go with the Braves winning two. Dodgers are still the favorites to win the series. I just thought they would come in and start beating up the Braves. I also kind of just took for granted that the series would be in Los Angeles and then forgot that they didn't win the series, <laughs> but... Still, it turned out okay in the long run because I think the Dodgers are going to be all right. We'll see. Maybe we'll come back on Tuesday and it'll be a uh, it'll be a two two series and and maybe you can hit the panic button on that. But Dodgers should be okay, right? Right? Should be okay. Either way, it was still super fun to watch that first game. I mean, yeah, Mookie went over and Trey Turner tried to do something, but left runners and how many runners? Let's see, they left. 10 11 runners in scoring position that is a huge l for the dodgers credit to max freed and will smith came in even though it wasn't a save situation to bail them out like clap clap to the braves pitching staff the way they were going to catch the dodgers is coming true right now because they are making the most of this situation going into this series all he had was one will smith homer and other than that, you pretty much contained him. A Chris Taylor base running error did kind of bail you out. So even in their wins, it felt like the Dodgers were going to win the whole way through. But I think that's the beauty of being an underdog, right? Atlanta gets to revel in that for the next few weeks or so. I get not next few weeks, next few days. Baseball series don't go on for two and a half weeks like the NBA. Baseball series are over like that. So maybe by next Saturday. By next Saturday, we'll know the winner. Last year, I think Game 7 was on a Saturday, and I think if the same is true, that should be the case this year again. So uh should be fun. We'll see how this one keeps going. Is it Scherzer next for the Dodgers? I guess we'll see what it ends up being, but I imagine Morton will pitch for the Braves in Game number 2, which is in the middle of a football Sunday, but... I'll still find a way to watch it. Instead, actually, they set it up perfectly. The game will become... Oh, it is Ian Anderson. So Scherzer versus Ian Anderson. Um, if the Dodgers lose on Sunday, that might be a little more concerning. But they have set this up perfectly. Why? Because we can watch the end of this game and go to sleep. The game starts at 3.30 West Coast time, which means it should end around 7 o'clock. And we don't have to stay up for Sunday night football. Why? 
because it's Geno Smith against Ben Roethlisberger, and nobody needs to watch Geno Smith versus Ben Roethlisberger. You can spend that extra time catching up on the Take It Easy podcasts, which have a whole archive of 740 episodes you can tune into, including fun stories like the story of Bill Belichick being the Jets coach for like two days. You can check that out way deep into the archives. Um, I can't even tell you what day it was. It was in March of, or April of 2020. That's what I can tell you. But there's all kinds of archived episodes that are more recent that you can check out as well. So thanks for stopping in to Wired Up episode 90. And we'll talk to you on Monday with our NFL Monday double episode. We'll talk to you then, everybody. Take it easy.